now recording. Brilliant. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Safadi Habura. I believe we are on week 27, uh, the last year of 2020. Uh, looking forward to a jam-packed 2021 curriculum um, spanning everything from Machshava to history to Halakha. Uh, so we really hope you can join us. Uh, if you're new to the Habura, please do leave your email address uh, privately in a chat to me. You can just send me a direct message. Um, we also have a WhatsApp group that I'll, I can share with you once you send me your email address. Uh, not much housekeeping this week, just to say that the journal, uh, I'm sure most of you have seen it by now. It is a January edition, so it means that we will start seeing it sent out to uh, you know, local communities, local shuls, via the email blast that they send out every week. Um, in the next few weeks, you should be seeing that. Um, and I'm very, very, very excited about this week's guest. Uh, Rabbi... Liebens was somebody I came across on Facebook, actually, for many, many years. Whenever there were some interesting discussions and debates, people would want to tag Rabbi Liebens. He was like the authority. People waited to hear what he had to say about this matter. Um, it got to a point when I was uh, writing my book, uh, I reached out to Rabbi Liebens uh, as an Amha Aretz. He was you know, willing to respond to someone like me and actually willing to review my book and kindly provide a Haskama. Uh, and uh, I'm very, very pleased to be able to host him tonight uh, as part of the Spadi Chaburah's curriculum. Uh, he is an academic philosopher and orthodox rabbi. His latest book, profound, profound book, called The Principles of Judaism, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, please do go online, search The Principles of Judaism by Samuel Liebens. He was born and raised in England, having studied in numerous Israeli yeshivot. He's worked in a, a variety of American universities, and now Rav Liebens is a senior research fellow at the University of Haifa. We are very, very, very honored to have him here tonight to talk about a topic that really um, taps into the, the core of what the Chabara is trying to provide uh, the Jewish communities around the world. Uh, a topic that is sometimes not really addressed that often, but I think something that is very, uh, you know, worthy of listening into and learning more about to see just how deep our hachamim were willing to go to understand more about the world and everything within it and outside of it. So Rabbi Liebens, the stage is all yours. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, please, uh, everybody, feel free um, to raise a hand or, or put a question in the chat at any point uh, along the way. Um, the title of this little talk is, uh, was there a day without a yesterday? Was there a first day? And uh, of course, you, you, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the answer from a Jewish perspective is obviously yes, because, you know, just open up Sefer Bereshit and, and uh, there's day one. Uh, but it's not as simple as that. The Rishonim, the, the Gaonim and the Rishonim, the, 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 rabbi, the great rabbis of the Middle Ages uh, debated this uh, question at length. And there were three main positions that emerged. Uh, the first position is creatio continua, which is the view that the universe had no beginning, uh, even though uh, Sefer Bereshit makes it, look, makes it very much look like there was a beginning, uh, we'll see that there were indeed Chamim who uh, were of the opinion that no, that's a, a deceptive uh, appearance uh, the world couldn't have had a beginning. Um, we'll get to it. The next two views 
are known in Latin as a form of creatio originalis because they both agree that there was a beginning. The second view is called creatio originalis ex nihilo, yeshma ayin. So there was a first moment. And more than that, there was a first moment to the universe, but there was also a first moment to matter, right? God created uh, the universe out of nothing. So before there was a universe, there was just God. Perhaps uh, the Torah itself also pre-existed um, the creation of the universe. But there's another um, version of creatio originalis that says, no, 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 the, the universe was created on day one, but it was created yesh mi yesh. It was created out of something that pre-existed it, okay? And if you want to, uh, just a quick uh, summary of who held which positions, the, the position of yesh ma'ayin was championed most prominently by the following three chachamim, but it, it, it quickly became the majority opinion. Sa'adji Ga'on, right at the beginning of systematic Jewish philosophy, championed the, the idea that the world was created yeshma ayin from a beginning moment in time, creator originalis yeshma ayin, uh, in his great book, Emunot Vedeot. The Rambam, he, Maimonides, doesn't believe that you can prove for sure uh, any one of these theories, but he argues that since you can't prove any of these theories, we should go with the pshat, the pshat, the, the, the plain, straightforward reading of Sefer Reshit is, uh, according to the Rambam at least, creation, yeshma ayin, uh, creation from a beginning in time, out of nothing. The Rambam is quite clear that if you could prove one of the other views, then you'd have to just try and read Sefer Bereshit differently because we know that um, revelation is true. We know that the Torah is true, but we also know that the deliverances of the sciences, if they have been checked and double checked and run through, uh, you know, responsibly, that the findings of the sciences are also true. So you have to read the two uh, in, into conformity with one another. So the Rambam says, if you could prove one of these other theories, then we'd have to read the Torah otherwise. But as a matter of principle, you actually can't prove any of these theories. So we'll go with the Pshat reading of uh, Sefer Breshit. And right at the end, or, or right towards the end of, of, of the period of the Rishonim, you have Don Yitzchak Barbanel, a great rabbi and thinker and diplomat, um, and economist really, uh, who wrote a number of Sfarim specifically dedicated. Uh, so there's a Mif'alot Elohim, for example, is a book specifically dedicated to arguing for, for the creation Yeshma Ayin, um, which is interesting because his son is probably one of the people, as uh, Yehuda Abarbanel, is, is probably one of the people who supports Creatio Continua. But um, we can leave the family politics out of today. I wonder how they um, dealt with those arguments. Okay, yesh mi yesh is not a common view among the Chachamim, uh, among uh, the, the sages of the medieval period, but there is notably the Ralbag, uh, Gersonides, Rabbi Levi ben Gershon, who in Milchamot Hashem uh, argues that uh, for yesh mi yesh. And it's relatively easy to read at least Sefer Bereshit in this way, because 
In the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the world, there was tohu and there was vohu, seemingly already there, right? So you can, you can kind of read that there was this kind of primordial chaotic stuff that was without form. And, and the process of creation as described in Sefer Bereshit was the process of, of um, imposing form and structure upon that um, unstructured, chaotic, eternal matter. Creatio continua, I think, is, is, is the most controversial of these views. However, you have Rav Moshe Narboni, who was a, a, a Spanish uh, Maimonidean, um, who was a great Talmud Chochem, a halachist, um, as well as a philosopher. But indeed, one of the reasons you may not have heard of him was because he believed in creatio continua, and this was seen to be heretical, and a number of people kind of didn't respect him very much because of that. Uh, more respectable, perhaps, is Rav Yosef Ibn Kaspi, who was a prolific author, um, commentator on, on, on Chumash and on, on uh, multiple other works. Um, uh, he was from Provence. Um, he, he also believed in creative continua, and it's also one of the reasons he's quite uh, controversial. Chastai Crescus, uh, the author of Or Hashem, and perhaps, I mean, I'm showing you my bias now, not, not in terms of this question, but just in terms of other things, perhaps the greatest um, medieval Jewish philosopher other than the Rambam, and, and, and um, tragically overlooked, I think, by uh, many thinkers. And, and the good news is, uh, Or Hashem of Crescus, his, his magnum opus, um, has been translated into English just recently by Rosalind Weiss. It's available with Oxford University Press. It's a phenomenal book, a beautiful translation. Um, he has some very controversial views, uh, but actually he manages to make creatio continua, we'll see, slightly less controversial um, than it might otherwise sound. And it's actually not very clear whether he believed it or not. And that, you know. But anyway, he was much more accepted, uh, Crescus was, than these other two thinkers. He was, uh, he was based in Barcelona. Um, he was the rabbi of uh, many other rabbis, like he was the, he was the rabbi of, um, of Rav Yosef Albo, for example. Um, and he was a, just a tremendously influential uh, Catalonian um, figure. Okay, so those are, the, those are the views. Okay, either the universe has no beginning and God was always creating the universe. That's creator continuum. What it means is God has always been creating this universe. And if you were to press rewind, you'd never find a first moment of this process. That's the first view, creatio continua. It was the view, by the way, of Aristotle. And it was also the view of Einstein until um, he was seemingly proven wrong. Um, and the other two views are no, 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 no. Read Sefer Bereshit, you see there was a first moment. God created the universe on day one. And then you have a machloket, an internal machloket about whether that was yeshma ayin, that God created without using any material, or yeshma yesh, that God created using some primordial formless material. Okay, those are the three views. Anybody have any questions, any comments, any? Good. Okay. Yeah, yes, I, I would like to, to ask a, a simple question. Please. If uh, the interpretation is so open. Why is it a problem of uh, 
religiosity somehow because it seems to be a just a, a problem of belief of personal belief why do we that's, care what they a, care, what, what, what they think that's a fabulous question and we and and, and i i should have put it right i should have put this slide right here but i have a slide on that okay uh, on that question Sorry. and the question is like why does this matter yeah. and first of all it's kind of interesting to see just how wider range of opinions are represented by, you know, by really reputable Rabbanim from Kreskus to, to Ralbag and, and Rambam in the middle. Um, but why does it matter? We'll, we'll come back to. And, and also it, it raises yeah. the issue because it seems quite, uh, from, from just a simple reading of the Torah, it seems to be quite obvious that there was a creation from nothing. Okay. From nothing. And well, so, Let's put it this way, okay, the, 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 the pshat seems to be quite clear. But on the other side, uh, we come up, even with such a simple pshat, we, we come up with three diff completely different... <laughs> That's right. So where is the transmission in this? That's also a very interesting, important, a very important question. Where's the transmission in this? Uh, I think what we have to recognize is... <clears throat> For some reason, this question seemed to become more important to the rabbis of the medieval period than it did to rabbis in, in, in you know, antiquity. Um, if you look in Bereshit Rabbah, in the, mid, in, the, in the rabbinic midrashim on Sefer Bereshit, you actually see a number of these views played around with. There are uh, views in Bereshit Rabbah, we'll get back to it, that think that uh, there was no beginning there was just a series of, uh, of universes before this universe. Um, you also have views in Bereshit Rabbah that God created the world using uh, the elements of Tohu, Vohu, Mayim, um, these things that are mentioned there in the beginning of Sefer Bereshit. And you have the view in, uh, in, in, in uh, Bereshit Rabbah, you also have the view of Yeshma'ayin, uh, Shimon ben Gamliel, um, forcefully argues for uh, the creation of Yesh Mayim. So you ask, what does the Masorah say? Well, it wasn't a particularly heated debate until the Ga'onim and the Rishonim, um, but actually the Masorah seems to contain all of these views. Um, if, if you read through Bereshit Rabbah, you're going to be able to find representatives of all of these views. Um, but I'll come back to your question about why does it matter later on. Okay. I think one of the reasons it became a more heated debate among the, the medievalists was because um, Aristotle was taken to have proven that the universe had no beginning. And since he was taken to have proven that the universe had no beginning, this may have put Judaism into crisis. You say the universe had no beginning, but read Sefer Bereshit. It looks like the universe did have a beginning. What are we going to do? You can think of similar crises when uh, Darwin came up with the theory of evolution, we said, hold on a second, you know, that seems to be in, in conflict with Sefer Bereshit and we have a crisis. Um, Aristotelian science created something of a crisis in uh, medieval Jewry because it was taken to be proven uh, that the physical universe had no beginning. Uh, and therefore the rabbis really had to start getting busy uh, with either reinterpreting the Bible or showing why Aristotle's wrong. Okay, there are some uh, comments in the chat. May I record this session? Of course. Uh, and it will be up on YouTube in a couple of days. Okay. Um, 
So I just want to just very, very quickly talk about the Big Bang Theory and why it's not really relevant to us and why the rabbis are much, much more relevant to us uh, than what uh, uh, the physicists have to say, with no offense to uh, Sinner's uh, father-in-law. Um, good, and, and, and Gaddy's talking about what, you know, why it's important to him. He would like to be able to reconcile um, uh, contemporary science with, with uh, the Bible. Well, Einstein thought that the universe had no beginning. Okay, but there were these things called uh, um, the, the, the there were these things called field equations that a Catholic priest called George Lemaitre solved, and the way he solved them predicted that the universe was expanding. Einstein was sure that the Lemaitre must have made a mistake. In fact, he suspected Lemaitre because Lemaitre was religious of trying to smuggle theology into his physics because. Einstein figured out straight away, hold on a minute, if the universe is expanding and you press rewind, there must have been like a central point in space and time from which it all tumbled out, a creation. However, pretty soon after Lemaitre made this prediction, Edward Hubble observed uh, using his uh, very powerful telescopes for the time, he observed that, that all deep space objects seem to be moving away from us and accelerating as they, as they do so, um, which seemed like confirmation of George Lemaitre's theory. Uh, given general relativity, Einstein's um, kind of theory of how space and time hangs together, um, and given what we know that the universe is expanding, if you press rewind, you get to this singularity, this moment that you might call a beginning to space and time, uh, a limit. Um, pope Pius was the Pope at the time, and he was tremendously excited because he thought, ah, we've proven there's a beginning. So we've proven that there was a creation. And that proved to be, in my opinion, far too hasty. Um, why? Well, for two reasons. The first reason is that general relativity is probably not true. The Big Bang Theory is, is the way we imagine the universe started if you accept general relativity. Um, however, general relativity is phenomenally accurate. We've been able to test it in all sorts of uh, regimes and in all sorts of ways, and its predictions always come out beautifully correct, apart from um, certain quantum phenomena. And there's a massive, when you get to very, 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 very tiny, um, um, kind of uh, systems. And what this led to uh, is a consensus among physicists that we haven't found the final theory yet of how space and time hang together. We need to find some way of reconciling quantum mechanics and quantum gravity with Einstein. And until we do, um, we can't really be sure the Big Bang is right. The Big Bang theory is, is what we get if Einstein's theory of general relativity is right and you press rewind. However, in the very, very early stages of um, the universe, these quantum phenomena are gonna get more and more important and therefore general relativity is gonna get less and less accurate. And in fact, um, there used to be a question that you, that you, you know, if you were in a science class and you asked this question that you know, the teacher would probably throw something at you. If you asked, yeah, what happened before the big bang? 
throw something at you. It's a stupid question. That's like asking what's north of North Pole. There's no north of North Pole. There's no before the Big Bang. The singularity is 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 a limit to space time. There's no before it. Um, however, on all of the most promising ways of reconciling quantum physics and Einstein's theory of relativity, general relativity, um, whether it's string theory, loop theory, and various other theories, all of them uh, predict that there were times before the Big Bang. So um, on all of the most hopeful uh, ways of reconciling the different branches of physics that we are aware of today, in all of them, um, it's now sensible to ask what happened before the Big Bang. So Pope Pius was probably too quick to get excited, right? But the other problem is, even on orthodox Big Bang theory, there isn't a first moment. This is very, very hard to try and explain, but let me try and explain it very quickly. There is no first positive number, okay? Why, what do I mean? Well, take the number zero, find me the first number after zero. Well, you'd think it's one, right? But 0 0.1 is, is earlier than one, and 0 0.01 is earlier than 0.1 and 0.001 is earlier than zero. Are you with me? Right? There's no first smallest number if you're willing to have, you know, a, dec a decimal point there. And think of it like this. Zero is the limit, but there's no first number after zero. Um, in, big, in orthodox Big Bang theory, um, the singularity is a limit to space time. It's like the number zero, but it's not an instant in time, and indeed there is no first instant in time. Um, it's very, very difficult uh, to explain. Um, you might even think, well, okay, doesn't matter, right? Um, at least the past is finitely long. Well, even that is kind of, a singularity is a very, very, very difficult thing to explain. And in fact, uh, we, they might not even be coherent. This might be one of the places where Einstein's physics is just wrong. But um, a singularity is something is, is, is where something called a time-like curve um, becomes infinitely curved. Um, so it's not, even, it's not even right to say the past is finitely long uh, in the Big Bang on the Big Bang Theory. Basically, the Big Bang Theory is just very, very confusing. And what... Um, I think his name is Brian Pitts. He's a Catholic philosopher of science in London. He made the following suggestion. It's straight out of the Rambam. He says, if you believe there was a first moment, you have to install it by hand. Say that again. If you believe there was a first moment, science doesn't discover that for you. You have to install it by hand. This is something that faith would reveal to you, but not science. He says, okay, if it turns out that there could have been moments before the Big Bang, you know, on, 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 the, on the new non-orthodox physics, still, if you're willing to install the first moment by hand because of faith, then you can, you can continue to do that. But basically, Brian Pitts's point is that contemporary physics really doesn't give us the sort of exciting lead one way or the other. And in fact, let me just ruin this all for you right now. Physics really can't help us here because of, of, of 
what's called the five minute hypothesis. For all that the physicists can tell us, right? The universe is five minutes old. Everything popped into being five minutes ago. It just has kind of deceptive signs of antiquity. When Adam Arishan cut down a tree in Ganadin, it had rings, right? So imagine the world was created 6,000 years ago, but it was created as an old universe. Indeed, that's what the Lubavitcher Rebbe argued in a, in a famous letter, right? God just made the world looking old. Um, that doesn't mean that it's any older than 6,000 years. The physical data here doesn't help. That seems to be uh, the point. Okay. I can't talk about the first three minutes of the book, although it's an excellent book because it's uh, beyond me. Uh, why would God make the world look old? Just to confuse us, Gaddy, I, I don't want to do this too much because it's, it's really uh, shame, shameful, but I discussed that in my book. Um, my book is ridiculously expensive, and I'm sorry to say that because uh, it's an academic book. If you're interested, please get my email address and I, I can get you a, a third through the OUP website. Uh, but I agree, it, does, it, 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 it is deceptive. God made the universe look much older than it is. And, and, and why would he do that to us? Okay, so having said the physics isn't all that important, let's get to what is important, the philosophy, okay? And here's a great little argument from Ibn Sina. And it's an argument that the Rambam is gonna to have to deal with, okay? Um, assume, that a physical universe is matter with form. Now this could be anything, uh, here is a, I don't know why this is on the table right now, but here in between my finger and thumb is a popcorn seed. Imagine that was the only thing that existed. That'd still be a universe. It would be a very small little universe, but it's still the universe. As long as you have matter with form, you've got a universe. That's assumption one. That seems like, that seems like a good assumption. Hard, hard to disagree with that assumption. Okay, assumption two, what is matter? Well, matter is the stuff that you make stuff out of. I'll say that again. Matter is the stuff that you make stuff out of, okay? This is, this is uh, basic Aristotelian physics. Uh, here's a book, it's on my table. Um, it's not the day out of such a got on, okay? And it's made of paper and whatever. It's a physical item, it's a physical thing. According to Aristotle, if you've got a physical thing, you should, you should be able to ask, yeah, well, what caused it to be? And there are a number of different types of causes for Aristotle. There's the efficient cause. The efficient cause is the person who made it or the factory and the event of actually making it. It's the efficient cause. There's the teleological cause. The teleological cause is the reason it was made. Things aren't made for no reason. So clearly, you know, Yale University Press thought they could make some money out of the Jews if they published this, right? So there was a telos, there was a purpose, and that, that also was involved in making this. There's a formal cause. The formal cause is the plan that the printer had in his head for what this would look like when it comes out. There's also always a material cause. The material cause is the stuff that it was made out of, which was just plain paper. 
and ink, right? The plain paper in the ink was the material cause that the efficient cause arranged in this form, according to the formal cause, for a reason, to make money, which was the teleological cause, okay? But what is matter? Matter is the ingredients that things are made from. And whenever you have physical change in the universe, right, that change is, is just matter taking on a new form. So I've got wood and I've got nails and I cause a table to exist by taking the matter that is nails and wood and rearranging it into a new form, the form of tables. So matter, what is matter? Matter is defined as the pre-existing substratum for anything that comes into existence. It's just a definition. If something comes into existence, it has a material cause, the stuff that it's made from, okay? I see there's a question, one minute. Can there be matter without form? That's the next assumption. Matter is never without form. Now, why should you think matter is never without form? Well, what is form? Form is something like a set of properties. Can you imagine some matter that's got no properties whatsoever? Very difficult, because even the property of having no properties whatsoever seems to be like a property. <laughs> it's, it's, it seems absurd to think there could be anything that has no properties, right? Even to say that it has no properties is to say that it has the property of not having any properties, which is a property. So it's absurd to think there can be matter without form. So that's why, so I wanna argue, you know, all three of these assumptions seem pretty strong, okay? Okay. Therefore, matter always exists if anything is gonna come into being. You can't make something if there's no matter because the form needs to, grab onto some ingredients. That just follows from two. Therefore, there is always matter with form because if there's always matter, there's always matter with form because there's never such a thing as matter without form. Therefore, there's always a universe because a universe just is matter with form. Therefore, if God is the creator of the universe as Ibn Sina sincerely believed because he was a devout Muslim, if the, you know, if God is the creator of the universe, it must be the case that he's always creating it. And this isn't based on empirical investigations. It's not because of Edward uh, uh, Hubble and his telescope. And it's not because of Lemaitre and his solution to the field equations. And it's not because of, it, it's just, it, it just follows from definitions of, 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 of philosophy. Okay, hold on a second. According to Ibn uh, uh, Good. There's a nice there's a nice conversation going on uh, among the participants. One second, but I'm not going to necessarily uh, relate to everything. I I think I saw somebody put their hand up though. Please please feel free. Just just put your microphone on and ask. No. Okay. Uh, did God ever intend to make the universe? Asked Effie. Yes, he always intended to. From moment to moment, God is giving being to the universe and he's unchanging because if God could change, that would show that there was something deficient about him that needed, you know, he needed to kind of, he needed to shift because something wasn't quite right with him. So he had to change. Now, everything's always right with God. So he never needs to change. He always wanted to create a universe. 
And he always was creating universe and he'll never change because he doesn't change. That's the view. Um, premise two, matter is the pre-existing substratum for anything that comes into existence. That's actually the thing here, which is carrying all of the weight of the argument. And in, in Latin, it's known as ex nihilo nihil fit. Nothing comes from nothing. There's actually a song by Billy Preston. Nothing from nothing is nothing. Got to hear it. It's very good. Um, um, but ex nihilo nihil fit. And this is the thing that the Rambam attacks. Okay. How do you know that every single thing has to be made out of a pre-existing matter. How do you know that for sure? Okay, and this is what the Rambam has to say about it. This is from the Mon of Chim, Chelek Bet, chapter 17. He has what philosophers call a thought experiment. I, I could, uh, Sina, I could talk forever. So you have to tell me how long I should be going for. Like, just give me, you know. I don't want you to finish. I don't think anyone wants you to finish. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, he has a thought experiment. He imagines a man who is born basically in a desert island and his mother dies early. And he, he's, he's raised only by his father and he never ever sees a female animal or human give birth. And finally that dreaded day comes that comes in the life of every parent where their child turns around and says, dad, where do babies come from? Okay, dad, where did I, where did I come from? Because he's never seen uh, an animal give birth. And he'll ask his dad, and his dad will tell him, he'll say, well, you know, when a man and a woman love one another very much, and, da, 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 and he'll tell them the whole story of the birds and the bees. And the orphan says the Rambam will naturally disbelieve. Why? He imagines what the orphan will say. Did this person, when he lived, moved, and grew in the womb, eat and drink and breathe with his mouth and his nostrils? And the answer will be no. Undoubtedly, he will then attempt to refute the statements of his father and to prove their impossibility by referring to the properties of a fully developed person in the following manner. When any one of us is deprived of breath, the, orph the orphan will say, even for a short time, he dies and cannot move any longer. How then can we imagine that any one of us has been enclosed in a bag in the midst of a body for several months and remained alive, able to move? If any one of us would swallow a living bird, the <laughs> I often, whenever I see a kid, Who's, who's expecting to have a sibling come along pretty soon. I say, what's in your mummy's tummy? And, and, and he or she'll say, a baby. I say, your mum ate a baby? Right, so, <laughs> so um, if, if any one of us would swallow a living bird, the bird would die immediately when it reached the stomach, much more so when it came to the lower part of the belly. Suppose by accident a hole were formed in the belly of a person, it would prove fatal. And yet we are, we're to believe that the navel of the fetus has been open? 
And, and this mode of reasoning, says the Rambam, would lead to the conclusion that man cannot come into existence and develop in the manner described. But the orphan is clearly making an error, right? Um, Gaudi says, how can I discount physics so easily? Doesn't physics come up with singularity? Yes, just to answer Gaudi's question, yes, physics did come up with a singularity, but first of all, we're not actually sure that in the final physics, there will be such things called th singularities. Physics is not finished. And second, uh, the singularity isn't a first moment. And third, God could have created the universe a second ago with signs of there being a singularity. Okay, you ask me, yeah, but why would he do that? I'm not sure yet. But, but all I'm saying is physics alone isn't gonna settle the question one way or the other. And Ibn Sinner tried to settle the question just using philosophy. And the Rambam is knocking him away. And the Rambam's saying, look, the mistake the orphan makes is a quite natural one. What he does is he looks at the laws that govern a mature human being and he applies them to the genesis of the human being. But he's wrong to do that because the rules that govern a fetus are not necessarily the same as the rules that govern a mature human adult. In exactly the same way, says the Rambam, the Rambam loved Aristotelian physics. He thought it was brilliant. I think he thought it was the greatest intellectual achievement of humanity to that, you know, to date, Aristotelian physics. But Aristotelian physics, which tells us that everything that exists has a material cause, and therefore there's no such thing as something made from nothing. Aristotelian physics are the laws that govern the mature universe. And you'd be making the same error that the orphan makes to think that the same set of rules that govern a mature adult universe would also govern the genesis of the universe. Exactly the same mistake that the orphan makes because the orphan thinks that the rules that govern a healthy adult human being should be applied to the genesis of the human being. And that's an error. <laughs> so the Rambam's point is, Ibn Sinner, you have not proven to me that the universe had no beginning. I can't prove to you that it did have a beginning, says the Rambam. Could have been created two minutes ago. But I have something called revelation. And the Torah tells us that the world was created in a first moment. That, that's the Rambam's position. Okay. Um, I was gonna ask, is hello. this the premise? Hello. I was gonna ask, so is this the premise for the scientific laws of the conservation of mass? Is that sort of where they derive from? That's, that's, a, that's a really, really nice point. Um, yes, in a nutshell. Um, laws of conservation tell you there's always the same um, net um, energy and matter in any closed system, in any causally closed system. And you're right that one of the consequences of that is there's no such thing as um, yeshma ayin, creation ex nihilo, right? Everything needs to be created out of everything else. But the big question is, is the universe causally closed? Or is there some, is there some cause outside of the universe, God, who creates things. So the laws of conservation alone aren't gonna to prove to you that, that, that the universe wasn't created from nothing. 
it just proves to you that in a causally closed system, there can be no such thing as creation from nothing. Um, okay, but you're right. Um, this Aristotelian physics evolved into, into the laws of conservation that we still have today. Okay, very nice question. Thank you um, so much. Thank you. Um, but uh, creation from nothing, says Baruch, means there were no rules. No, the Rambam's not saying there were no rules, but they could have just been different. And the rules could have allowed for creation from nothing. The rules that govern a mature universe don't allow creation from nothing, but the rules that govern the genesis of universe may have done. We don't know what those rules are. He's completely, so to speak, agnostic. And for that reason, he has to just wait and, you know, and see what revelation tells him. Okay, I'm gonna move on just to make some progress. Here's, an, here's a nice little argument. It's another argument like Ibn Sinners. Um, assume that the passage of time doesn't require the occurrence of change. This is a big machloket even today among philosophers. If you freeze the universe and have nothing move, nothing change, is time still passing? All of the clocks would have frozen because clocks are physical machines, right? Is time still passing if nothing's moving? Aristotle thought that no, time is just the measure of change. If there's no change, then there's no time, there's no passage of time. But a number of philosophers today think that's, that's wrong. There could be time, even in a frozen universe. There's a great uh, um, secular philosopher called Sidney Shoemaker who in the 60s, I think pretty well demonstrated that it's coherent to think of time passing even in uh, a frozen universe. So let's assume that the passage to time doesn't require the occurrence of change. And that means time was always ticking even before God created the universe. Tick tock, tick tock. Assume that time was ticking through the eternal void until God suddenly decided, ah, I think I'll create a universe. Now this is gonna raise a number of problems. One of the problems is this, assume in the infinite darkness of pre-creation time, no one moment is any different from any other moment because nothing's happening in any of them. Just God sitting around being perfect, unchanging from moment to moment. So there's nothing to distinguish one time from another. Therefore, God has no reason to choose one moment in which to create over another moment. Why would he choose day one when he could have chosen what we would now think of as day minus one? Assume God doesn't act without reason. Therefore, God cannot choose one moment in which to create because the choice would always be arbitrary and unreasonable. Therefore, God is either always creating or never creating. And since we're theists and we believe that we live in God's creation, we should adopt creatio continua. You can see the sort of pressure that the rabbis felt that they were under, right? To save the, the account of Sefer Bereshit. Sajigaon, we're gonna rely here on two great, great philosophers, two of my favorite. Sajigaon, my son is named after Sajigaon, and Al-Ghazali, Al-Ghazali. And the great thing is about this period, and it's inspiring, and I think it should inspire us too, is that all of these thinkers, these great pious Jews, Muslims and Christians, while the Amcha were busy persecuting one another and, and basically persecuting the Jews on both sides, because we've never had any of the power to persecute anyone, 
while the Amchel was busy persecuting, these guys were reading one another with great respect, right? You, you read Mifalot Elokim of, uh, of Abarabanel, and he's quoting Augustine, and he's quoting Averroes by name. And like today, if you were to pick up a, a book by a great, great, you know, Gadolador, it's unlikely that they'd be quoting many Christian Muslim thinkers. And it was a different time. And I think there is something there to um, aspire to. But anyway, um, Sajagaon relates to this argument we've just seen in the Munavat Deot in, in the first treatise, the, at the end of the fourth chapter. He says, if an individual were to ask, why did God create the universe? Why didn't he create these things earlier? Why did he create them when he created them? Why didn't he create them earlier? Sajagaon has two responses. The first response is that there was no time yet. Okay, so basically he denies loads of these assumptions. He denies assumption one. He says there was no time before there was a physical universe. Time is a measure of physical change. Before the physical universe, there is no time. So basically God created the universe and time simultaneously. So you can't talk about what God was doing before the universe. That just doesn't make sense. God exists somehow beyond time, but not before time. And there are no moments of pre-creation time. That's ridiculous because Sajagon hadn't, writ hadn't read uh, Sidney Shoemaker. But Ernst Mach would be cheering him along, right? A, a, a lot of contemporary uh, uh, philosophers and physicists uh, agree with Sajagon and Aristotle. There's no time without change. So it's stupid to talk about what was God doing before. <laughs> Augustine tells a lovely joke. He asks, what was God doing before he created the universe? He was preparing hell for people with the audacity to ask what God was doing before he created the universe. Anyway, um, uh, but, but eventually Augustine's answer is actually the same as Sajigan's answer. Augustine says, there's no such thing as before the universe. Okay? But then he says, even if there was, even if Sidney Shoemaker's right, what it really means for God to have free will is for him to be able to act whenever he wants to. To be really free is, to, is, not, to, is not to be beholden always to a reason. So again, People have asked, why does this debate matter? Well, first of all, you can start to see why it matters because people thought the Bible was under attack. Okay. It wasn't necessarily under attack, but they thought it was. One of the reasons the debate matters is we're learning so much. We're learning something about what freedom means. We're learning about something about what matter is. We're learning about what time is. And these things are like important fundamental notions. And the Chachamim, the sages, the rabbis had things to say about all of this. And Sajagon wants to teach us something about freedom. He says, don't think that a free being is one that always acts according to a reason, as Kant would think many, many, many years later. That's wrong. Sometimes, sometimes you exercise your freedom by acting for no reason at all. And, and there's actually a Hasidic tradition that talks about this. In, in, um, in Megillat Esther, the book of Esther, it says, Kacha Kacha is a great word. You can't translate it into English so well. It's like kacha, like stam kacha, just like thus and so, but just like kacha, stam, just that's the way it is. 
This is how God treats, this is how the king, sorry, treats those who he wants to, you know, um, honor. But there's a tradition that when we read about the king in uh, the, the Megillah, it doesn't just mean Achashverosh, it's also teaching us something about God when it's just the king. There's a Lubavitch tradition that Kacha is an acronym for Kete Kol Hektarim, the crown of crowns. Why is it the crown of crowns to act kacha? Because most people, when they act, they have a reason. They're always beholden to some reason or another. And even if you act arbitrarily to show how I'm so free, you're doing it just to show how free you are. But God, he really isn't, he doesn't always have to be beholden to a reason. He's, he's really that free. And that's a sign of his majesty. Now, Hopefully God never acts in conflict with reason. But I, I, I purposefully didn't want the donkey to come up when the slide came up because you'd think it was my picture of Sajigon, chas v'chalila. But, but I, wanted, I want the donkey here for a reason, okay? This is a famous donkey. It's called, he's called Buridan's ass, okay? But it's not Buridan um, who came up with this. Al-Ghazali came up with this and Buridan either wittingly or unwittingly stole it. Um, Al-Ghazali's example is, um, you look at a beautiful uh, fig tree and there are two beautiful figs and they're equally beautiful. So there's no good reason to pick fig A over fig B. So since there's no good reason and you're rational, you only act for a reason, what do you do? Do you starve to death? because you've got no reason to pick fig A over fig B. No, sometimes the reasonable thing to do is to act for no good reason. Sometimes the reasonable thing to do is to make an arbitrary decision. Buridan's ass is a donkey who's got to pick between two piles of hay from which to eat, the one on the left or the one on the right. But they're both equally good, they're both equally near, they're both equally sustaining. And if this donkey is perfectly rational, he's got no grounds to choose the one over, on the right over the one over the left. So what should he do? Die of starvation? No, sometimes the rational thing to do is just to make a choice that's arbitrary, to flip a coin. That's the rational thing to do. And, and in a sense, that's a sign of freedom. And that's what Sajigaon, I think, is saying too, in the Manuva Deot here, saying, even if there is time before the universe, it's no, you know, don't worry about God. Oh, how's God gonna choose a time to make the, don't, don't worry, he's, he's, he's perfectly capable. He, he, he's no worse than Buridan's, than Buridan's ass, that's for sure, okay? Um, okay. We'll do one more argument. I'll take some questions and see if, if, if anyone's got time for more. Okay. Sorry, can I, can I ask a question about Please, the... please. Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of, maybe this is a complete side point, so don't let me take you too far off, but the... The donkey still has a good reason to choose to eat something. He yeah. hasn't got a decision to choose between A or B. Good. But making, but do you see what I'm just trying to say? Good, I do see what you're trying to say, and I think, and I think that that's that that's that's right. Sajigan wouldn't want to say that God does things without any reason whatsoever. It's that within the parameters of of reasonable action. Um, it's sometimes reasonable um, 
to make an arbitrary decision. So within those fixed parameters, uh, freedom requires the ability to act without reason. Does that make any sense? Yeah, so it's still, you know, God's decision to create the universe itself isn't arbitrary. His decision when to create it is a That's right, that's right. God needs to have a good reason to want to create the universe. And Sajigon actually speaks about that in the Munafa Deyot, about what his reasons were. Uh, the Rambam thinks that's not a question we could possibly answer. Uh, doesn't the very concept of creating presuppose time? That's a very nice idea. Um, um, yes, I think, I think maybe it does. Uh, Baruch, what I can do uh, is only I can refer you to a paper that you can find on Google by the, the great Catholic philosophers Eleanor Stump and Norman Kretzmann called Eternity. And they talk about how an eternal being, a being outside of time, can do things that are simultaneous with time um, that might be able to answer your question because I don't want I don't want to confuse people who perhaps hadn't thought of the question. And that, that's my answer to you, Baruch. Okay, good. Final argument. Okay. God has perfection P. I don't care right now what the perfection is, just some perfection or other, but he has it eternally. Two, God can't have P at time T without a universe. That would entail that the universe is eternal. And, and Aquinas, who's pictured here, he worried that there were some good arguments that kind of fit this pattern. For example, God is never ignorant. So he always knows how to create a world. God is never impotent. And so he always can create a world. God is never envious. And so he'd never want to keep his good from others. Therefore God must eternally create a universe. So worry, okay. And in fact, this is where Crescus comes. I think Crescus, there's lots of debate about how to read Crescus and what he really thought. And was he trying to hide his real views? And I don't want to get into that. Um, but it seems like Crescus could at least see the attraction of this type of argument. Why? He says, even if we suppose that the existence of the universe proceeds by way of necessity from God. What is entailed is constant creation. Even if we believe that the existence of the universe proceeds necessarily from God as a benefaction. Basically, he's, he's imagining this argument. Let me show it to you. God has perfection, P eternally. What's the perfection? Being good. Two, God can't be good at a given time unless he's being good to somebody. Three, therefore there must always be somebody he's being good to. And how does Crescus be good? He bees good to people. <laughs> I'm butchering the English language. Crescus, Crescus thinks God bees good to people by bringing them into being. So God is always bringing things into being because he's always good, right? He seems to see, there's a, says, he says, the absolute truth, according to what's found in the tradition, is that God created and brought the universe into being at a certain instant. As it is said, in the beginning, God created, and so on through the entire passage. So he changes track, and now he says, no, 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 forget that. Sefer Bereshit, there's a beginning. 
And then he kind of goes back again and he says, yet, oh gosh, yet the question indeed remains, and this is a question we've seen, why did he bring it forth at a certain instant when whether from the perspective of the agent or from the perspective of what is acted upon, all instants are equivalent, meaning why did he choose the time he chose? He could have done it earlier. And he says, well, there are two answers. One answer is that God can just make a kacha kind of, no, he's, he's, not, he's not tied down like Buridan's ass. So one, one answer is by saying that God's wisdom ordained for a certain reason, that the universe have a beginning. So it had to have a beginning. He wanted it to have a beginning. And since he wanted it to have a beginning, he just had to make an arbitrary choice. The other is by our permitting ourselves what appears in some of the dicta of our sages of blessed memory. And he's quoting here, Bereshit Rabbah. Dicta which are quoted by the rabbi of the guide, Maimonides, and which no one we have encountered disputes. They said, and they, they are the rabbis in Bereshit Rabbah who were talking about the verse, Vayehi Erev, Vayehi Boke, Yom Echad. And there was evening, and there was day. And the question is, why does it say, and there was evening? It makes it sound almost like there was something before it. There was evening. Why, and there was evening. And they say, this teaches that God would construct worlds and destroy them. There was a whole sequence of worlds before this one. And another, this teaches that the order of times preceded this. The intent of these dicta, as it appears, is to indicate that there is a constant creation, but that worlds come to be at a certain instant and pass away at a certain instant. So the idea is, okay, we, I know that this universe has a beginning because Sefer Bereshit tells me it does. But by golly, this was a good argument on the, on the previous slide. How do I reconcile that argument with Sefer Bereshit? Well, I say, okay, this universe had a beginning, but that doesn't mean God's creations have a beginning. There could have been universes before this universe. And indeed, that's what the rabbis teach. And perhaps this is why Crescus is better known and less controversial and more halachically acceptable source than Moshe Narboni and, and Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kaspi, because he manages to, to kind of square creatio continua, you know, with, with the rabbis and the Bible. Yeah, this universe had a beginning, but the creation didn't. Very sophisticated little solution there. But it's not a great argument. It's not a great argument. I think you can be good without being good to somebody. Okay. Um, I want you to imagine, yes, Baruch's right, that could fit a multi, uh, multiverse hypothesis. There's always some creating going on. Kreska says this explicitly at the end of Or Hashem. He thinks by rights, God should be creating an infinite number of universes simultaneously with one another as well as spread out in time because he's infinite. Why would he start? Okay. So um, what I want you to do just quickly um, is imagine two societies. Okay. And they're supposed to be utopic. They're just ordered as perfectly as any society could be. Okay. Call, call them Justinia and Dispozinia. That's their names. They're two, and I want them to be absolutely identical. Now, in neither of these worlds does anyone ever need to be heroic. Why? Because it's so well organized that there's never the need for heroism. 
Okay? Nobody needs to be very charitable. Why? Because there's no poverty. Nobody needs to be giving. Why? Because no one's in need. Okay? No one needs to be courageous. Why? Because there's no evil to fight. Okay? So nobody in either of these societies ever gets the chance to show that they are like mamash tzaddikim. Right? That they are moral saints. They just don't get the chance to show it because there's never the need for, for really great altruism. The difference is that in one of these societies, people have the disposition to heroism. It's just that disposition is never awakened because there's never a need. That one's called dispositionia. In Justinia, nobody has the disposition. Now, if you lived in one of these societies, you wouldn't even know which one you lived in. Because you might think that you have the disposition to be a great tzaddik. I think we all do. But when, you know, when the time comes and we're tested, we don't all rise to it. The, the only way to know whether you are living in Justinia or Dispozinia is for some massive calamity to occur and then see who, who stands courageously in front of such a calamity with bravery and goodness. But that never happens. So we don't know whether you're in Justinia or Dispozinia. But it seems clear to me that the people who live in Dispozinia are morally better than the people who live in Justinia. Even though their lives are identical, they do the same number of mitzvot. The, the mere disposition to be heroic is already enough to make you really very worthy person. Raoul Wallenberg is reputed to have saved 100,000 Jewish souls in the Holocaust. Had the Holocaust not happened, he wouldn't have saved 100,000 souls. I think he probably still would have been a moral giant. It's just no one would have ever, ever have known it. He already had the disposition to save 100,000 people. All the Holocaust did uh, uh, in, in this regard was to reveal the moral grandeur of this hero that no one would have known about apart from God had it, been, had it not been for the Holocaust. And the basic argument I want to make is that your, your merit, your ethical merit, is not really a function of how much good you've done. It's a function of how much good you would do if you were called, if the situation demanded it. Now, often our dispositions improve over time because of the mitzvahs that we do, right? So the, the good deeds we do refine our dispositions, but still, what, what makes you as valuable as you are ethically are the dispositions you hold. And therefore God doesn't need a universe to be a loving God. God doesn't need a universe to be a good God. To be a loving and a good God, he just needs to be disposed to do good and to love if and when there are people around to be the, the beneficiaries of this love and this goodness. It's actually a very important argument because there are a number of Christians alive today who believe that the Muslims and Jews are dead wrong about the nature of God. 
God, they say, must be more than one person. Why? Because before God created the world, he was still loving, wasn't he? And you can't be loving if you've got no one to love. So God must be more than one person and they love each other. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. But we Jews and Muslims, anu bakahal ma'aminim, we in the congregation of believers, we, we don't adopt the Trinity. We think that's wrong. But do we think God wasn't loving before he created the universe? No, what it means for God to be loving isn't that he's actually loving something. It means he's disposed to love if and when called upon. Um, and if that's what you, uh, if you agree with me, then premise two of this argument is false. It's false for any perfection P. And therefore, Crescus's argument didn't have to push him to the place he went to. All right. What's the time? How long have I been speaking for? What's going on? Who am I? Okay, we, we've already gone for like a whole hour. Um, I, I won't be offended if you guys just leave, okay? Uh, but I would love to share with you this, this one more argument. It's the final argument. It's the argument on the other side. And it's, an, it's the argument for why we should think the universe has a beginning. And it starts with uh, John Philoponus, He's a very, very early Christian philosopher. It was adopted by Al-Kindi and made a little bit better, truth be told. He was a very, very early Muslim philosopher. And it was made even more sophisticated, in my opinion, uh, by Sajiga On in the Munot Badeot. And here's the argument. And I think, it's, I think this is a sound argument. I think it's right. And this is why I believe that the universe has a beginning, not because of the physics, because of the philosophy. Assume for the sake of reductio, that means assume in order to shoot this assumption down. Assume for the sake of argument that there are an infinite series of past moments. Right, so assume that the past goes back to infinity. Assume it isn't possible to complete an infinite series. This is now a controversial notion, a controversial doctrine. I think it's obviously true. The nature of an infinite series is, you, is that it cannot be completed. Okay, an infinite series cannot be completed, at least not serially. I think God can know all things simultaneously, but even God, I don't think, could complete an infinite series of tasks serially he could do them all at once but not serially because you never finish an infinite series you cannot complete an infinite series it's just true therefore it isn't possible to complete the series of past times follows from one and two assume if it isn't possible to complete the series of past times then presentness would never have reached us. It, it would still be on its way. We'd still be in the future. Therefore, presentness would never have reached us. Assume, and it's feel, this seems like a pretty fair assumption, presentness has reached us because we're in the present. Therefore, because we've, we've derived a contradiction, we'll have to get rid of the assumption with which we started. 
there is no infinite series of past times. Time had a beginning. Assume, and this seems like a very fair assumption, if there's no infinite series of past times, then there was a first moment. Therefore, there was a first moment. Okay, it's a great argument. It's there in the Monopoly Day Art. Um, you, again, if you've got if you've got a kidney to spare and you sell it on the black market and then, and can thereby afford my book, um, I talk about why I think this argument is such a good argument in my book. There are a lot of hidden assumptions about the way time works, about the way infinity works. We don't have time to go into them, but I think it's a fabulous argument. Why does it matter? Well, I think we've learned a lot of things on this journey, things about the nature of freedom, things about the nature of God's rationality, things about the nature of time, things about the nature of matter, about the nature of infinity. These are deep concepts that the rabbis had interesting and new things to say, about which they had interesting and new things to say. Now, the Rambam thought this was a crucial question for the following reason. He thought that if God was always creating the universe, then the universe necessarily exists. Because basically, Aristotelians, and in my, in my opinion, this is a mistake, that Aniastati, I don't want, you know, it's who am I to speak against Maimonides, but I think this was a common mistake of Aristotelian philosophers. They thought that if something always is the case, then it has to be the case. And if the universe always is, that means the universe has to be. And if the universe has to be, then God wasn't free to create it. Therefore we're not therefore we're not living pardon me i didn't hear i think someone asked why is that right you know uh, well think of it like this um you know that notion like if you had an infinite number of monkeys and an infinite number of typewriters one of them's bound to write the complete works of shakespeare that's, that's this view. The idea is, uh, if something's possible, then given enough time and enough typewriters and enough monkeys, it will happen. The idea is, if something's possible, it will happen. If something is impossible, then it will never happen. And if something is necessary, then it will always happen. So that which is always happening is that which is necessary. I think that's a bit too quick. I'm not sure it's true. But if it's true that the universe always existed and that which always is, is necessary, then it follows that the universe is necessary. It couldn't not have been. And if the universe couldn't not have been, then it's not God's free action. And if God doesn't have free will, how are we gonna make sense of miracles? How are we gonna make sense of, of his relationship with the Jewish people, which seems like a relationship based on a God who acts out of freedom. So for the Rambam, it was really super important that we can prove that the universe had a beginning because only if you prove that the universe had a beginning can you prove that the universe wasn't necessary. And only if the universe isn't necessary can you relate to the universe as God's free action. This is really, really important. I'm not sure he's right. Crescus thinks he's wrong. Crescus thinks that, 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 you know, God can be both free and eternally creating, okay? So that might not be a white matter. So let me just tell you very quickly why it matters to me. 
I want to have a relationship with God. And I hope you do too. And the question is, how do you feel when you approach God in prayer? I think if you relate to the world as something that tumbled out of nothingness in response to God's loving desire for a world, that's just going to be a very different sort of, that's going to change the attitudes you have to God um, um, when compared to a theologian who thinks, no, God didn't call the universe out of nothing. The universe always was. The notion of that awesome nothingness out of which God is saving us somehow, right? God's constant creativity is what's stopping the world from reverting back to that awesome nothingness. God is our protector against that awesome nothingness. That makes sense to me if you believe the, the universe had a beginning in time and God created the world out of nothing. But if, the God, but, but if there's no such thing as the awesome nothingness out of which the universe tumbled, then there's just gonna be a different sort of relationship you might have with God. That's part of why it matters. It's part of why theology matters. We're trying to figure out what sort of God is it that we're worshiping. And we know that we have only very blunt tools in terms of the spongy gray material between our ears to try and figure out what sort of God God is, but we do our best. Um, but theology helps us relate better to God in our prayers. Um, but the question I've left open, of course, this is the final slide. When God created, was it from nothing or was it from some pre-existing? Is it, did God save us from a great nothingness or did God save us from a chaotic, formless matter like the Ralbag thought, like Gersonides thought? That, my friends, is a question for a different, uh, uh, d a different time. Uh, but I do discuss it in my book. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much. Rav, if I can just tell you my WhatsApp buzzing, saying <laughs> this is incredible, this is fantastic, this is another level, etc., etc., etc. My teacher at university always used to say the if you want to if you want to know you've experienced a good philosopher, you go away not only with answers but way more questions. And uh, I definitely think I speak for everybody when I say that there are so many more questions to ask. Um, it was so fascinating to be able to have this macro view of how the Hachamim thought about these existential questions and kind of depressing when we think about where we are today. Uh, but thankfully, we have Hachamim like you to follow that uh, tradition. Um, I want to see if uh, anybody has any questions. Sure. Uh, because, I, Rob, I do know it's, it's, it's getting very, I mean, it started very late for you, so I don't actually want to take more of your time. Do you want to take a couple of questions? I'm very happy to. And I, I've, I'm, I'm a bit of an insomniac anyway. Okay. Um, well, you're a philosopher. You have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's see if there's any questions here. Um, yeah. Go ahead. You can just unmute if you want, whoever. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can I ask a question? Hello, Baruch. So I, I would like to know, at the end of the day, what is the answer? Was there a day before the creation or not? Um, there was, in my, in my opinion, the universe had a beginning. And therefore, there was a day that had no yesterday. There was a first moment. And I think this is demonstrated by Sajjigaon's argument. 
I think there was a first moment. The question that I didn't, the, the question I didn't get to uh, explore with you is okay, there was a first moment. Is that just like God exists outside of time, is there something called chaotic matter that also exists out of time, out of which God created the universe on day one? Um, I think there isn't, and I think that's a nonsensical view, but the Raubag did. And the Raubag is uh, a greater philosopher than me. Um, so it, it's a discussion for another time. Uh, all I was able to demonstrate today was, yes, I think there was a day without a yesterday. Okay, so the, 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 my, my, I have two questions about this. Why, why do we, uh, I have not yet understood why do we focus on this now and why the Chachamim couldn't answer that question uh, without, uh, with clarity. And instead of going into that very difficult questions about the origin, the singularity, etc., why don't we focus much more on something that is comprehensible, okay, which is Noah? Okay, because the creation of the universe, we can say, okay, the time, it was not the time, etc. But Noah, everything is simple with Noah. The years were the years, the days were the days, the people were the people, and we have uh, evidence of their, their, their corpses, that we, the, the, the skeletons that we have found, etc. And there is a simple question about Noah. How can it be that in what everybody agrees is 5,000 years, how can it be that from those two uh, specimens from each species and uh, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the Noah and his uh, kids, etc., there can be so much genetic diversity in today's world. And we know, we know, uh, because I, I've been discussing even with the geneticists, etc., we know that it's completely impossible. So wh mm -hmm. why do we spend so much time asking questions about, you know, time, uh, which is not de well defined, matter, which is not well defined, mm -hmm form which is not well defined and we philosophize on this when we can try to focus on a very simple question did Noah happen or not okay so I take the question it's a good question it's a fair question um, I I think like this one of the one of the things I find most fascinating about this debate between the Muslim Jewish and Christian philosophers of this period is that some of them gave us really, really good reasons to think that the universe must have extended into an infinite past. And if they're right, then that's problematic to your question about Noah and Sefer Bereshit in general, which makes it look like this world had a very definite beginning uh, around 6,000 years ago. And what we see is the rabbis were willing to say, well, if the philosophy proves to us that the universe is eternal, then we'll have to read those stories differently. Even if it means reading them as allegories, even if it means that they definitely came from God, but we'll be willing to do it. And then Alam comes on, and in my view, decisively proves using philosophy alone, long before Hubble, and in ways that it seems to me are inoculated from disproof by empirical observation. He proves, given the nature of infinity, he proves that time must have had a beginning. And that's very important because it saves your question. If we, we believe that time has a beginning, then we can start to ask, okay, well, when, when was that? Was it really 6,000 years ago? 
maybe it, it even allows for a completely literal reading of Sefer Breshit. On the other hand, what we see from the Chachamim is a willingness to be led by the two books that God authored rather than by the one book that God authored. In the words of Avtsadok Cohen, we, tr- quoting the Ispitzer, God wrote two books. He wrote the Torah, the Tanakh, and he wrote the laws of nature, which include philosophy, logic, and mathematics. And the Chachamim were willing to be read, were willing to be led by both of them. If it looks like there's a tension between them, if it looks to you like, hold on a minute, well, genetics makes it seem like it's not possible that Noah had all of the animals on the ark, then what we have to do is say, okay, well, maybe the story's an allegory and it didn't really happen, or maybe it happened, but it didn't happen quite as uh, explained. Maybe there was more than one Noah. Maybe there was a regional Noah in the Middle East who saved the Middle Eastern animals, and there was a a South American Noah who saved, and there was an Australian Noah who saved the the duck-billed platypus. Um, I don't know. But what I do know is that the the medieval rabbis give us a methodology for how to uh, um, how to answer or how to attack the sort of question you're raising. The methodology how, how, is how, let's be sorry, guided sorry. let's be guided both by the science and philosophy and by the revealed word of God, which is the Torah that we have. So, so, sorry, sorry to be uh, straight, but to be blunt, but how can we say? we have proof thanks to philosophy that time has a beginning when time is not even defined today. We, we don't know what time is nowadays. Okay, very good. Um, because the argument that Rav Sadja put forward is sound irrespective of which side you adopt in every controversy about the nature of time. For example, some people think time is discrete and some people think it's continuous, right? So uh, that, that, that means um, some people think it's infinitely divisible and some people think, no, it's not infinitely divisible. There are these smallest moments, maybe Planck length. Um, some people think um, time is dynamic. Some people think time is static. Some people think time is a measure of change. Some people think time can pass without change. Sajigan's argument works according to every side of every one of those machlokot. Right, so the point, Sajagon's, because he's brilliant, he's not called Gaon for nothing. Okay, but so how how didn't the the other other people bow down to his uh, conclusion? Ah. Why do why do we still have you know physicists etc. You know asking we have a Nobel Prize this year Penrose who thinks there was no creation ex nihilo. Good, good, good. So so all that physics can do. All it possibly can do is um, describe the physical data and describe mathematically um, how that data behaves. And um, a cosmologist can say the way that the data behaves suggests a creation from nothing or the way the data behaves suggests a creation from something, or the way that the data behaves suggests a steady state theory where there was no beginning. I'll let the physicists fight it out, but 
we all know that whatever the physics suggests, no physicist can ever prove that the universe is more than five minutes old. Why? Because even Bertrand Russell, my great hero and atheist friend, raised what's called, you know, he didn't believe in the creation, but he raised what's called the five minute hypothesis. For all we know, the entire universe sprung into being five minutes ago with the deceptive signs of age. And that wouldn't make Penrose's science any less good because what Penrose is describing is how the phenomena appear, okay? But how they are, how the phenomena are, is a question for the metaphysicist rather than the physicist. And I will advise you just briefly, a crazy, crazy book, absolutely insane, but brilliant for it. It's called The Fall and Hypertime by Hud Hudson. He says, there will never be a physicist ever who can prove the following hypothesis wrong. Let me tell it to you. 6,000 years ago, God created Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, and placed them in a garden. This was the beginning of the universe. God made this, the, 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 the earth just as the book of Genesis describes. It's a perfect science book. But then, when Adam and Eve ate the apple, God was so upset with them he said, you don't deserve to be created on the sixth day of creation as the pinnacle of, of my entire week's work. I'm going to make you an evolutionary afterthought. How am I going to do that? I'm going to exile you from the, the Garden of Eden, and I'm going to add billions of years of new past. Say that again. <laughs> going to exile you from Eden. And we're going to add billions of years of new past. And in this new past, there will have been a big bang and there'll be billions of years of, of, of cosmic activity. And then there'll be evolution and there'll be dinosaurs and there'll be whatever. And you'll be an evolutionary afterthought, a speck on the edge of a massive universe. Ha! Can, you can any physicist ever prove that that wasn't what happened? No, because what the, what the physicist would be studying is the new past, the past that God added, right? Uh, the old past is the one that's described in the book of Genesis. What Hud Hudson is pointing out is that we shouldn't confuse physics, which describe how, describes how the world we, look, we live in looks from metaphysics, which describes how the world we live in is. Um, and, and that's, again, I think part of the lesson of what I was trying to show today, um, that it's not the arguments of the physicists ultimately that's gonna prove whether or not the universe had a beginning. It's gonna be the arguments of the philosophers. No pressure, Rav Liebens, it's on you. Uh, <laughs> Baruch, you know your hand, your hand's been up for ages. Sorry about that, go ahead. Yeah, I think my questions have added up since you <laughs> started, especially the last point you made. No, because the last point you made essentially would then take away responsibility from anybody because if you artificially created billions of years of past and the person is fooled and the person believes that then the illusion is so 
deceptive that it's their reality. It's like the simulation universe idea. If we, live in, if we live in a simulation, so what? I mean, just accept yeah. it as a simulation. Yeah. And well, then I, I'm in a game. I'm basically in the game of somebody, some aliens game. Well, I was invited this evening to a Sfardi Khabura. And, and I am, I am, uh, Ashkenaz, I am Ashkenazi through and through, to, to my shame. Uh, no ideological, Rav, I'm sorry, you're so far, you're Oz. I'm, I'm Ashkenazi, thank you, Sina, I'm very, very happy to be adopted. But anyway, I, I called my son Saadia, so everyone thinks I'm Yemenite for some reason, even though Saadia wasn't from Yemen. But anyway, um, um, I'm Ashkenazi through and through, however, I thought, you know what, what I'll do for the Sfadi Chabura is I'll focus on the Rishonim, because let's face it, the greatest metaphysicians, the greatest kind of philosophical theologians of the medieval period, they were the Sfardim, basically, with some exceptions in Provence, but they were the Sfardim. So I thought, let's do that. But Baruch, the Ashkenazi in me is one big fat Hasid. And Hasidism is very, very interested, I think, in things that sound like the simulation argument. Okay. Um, olam shikra and olam emet, the world of appearance versus the world of truth. Tzimtzum shalok the world as it appears after this thing called tzimtzum. Um, but that's a, that's a conversation for another time. I, part of the project of my book um, is to articulate the deep principles of Judaism in ways that bring that Sephardi tradition of uh, medieval philosophy and science into conversation with uh, Hasidic philosophy. Um, and Baruch's point is already pushing us uh, in that direction. If God can manipulate time as much as I'm suggesting, he could even add a new past onto it. So, so much so that physics is almost irrelevant because, you know, then it raises all sorts of skeptical worries that Baruch has, you know, well, hold on a minute, then, you know, maybe we're just in a simulated reality and maybe nothing we do really matters and maybe, great, you are a few chapters ahead of, 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 this, of today's presentation, but, it, but I, I discuss these things in the book. But yes, you can look on Google, on YouTube, I have a talk, uh, uh, what happens if we find out we're fictional? And the basic point is not very much, it doesn't matter, carry on. <laughs> We, we are, in a sense, uh, we do exist in a reality that God projects from his mind. So there is a sense in which we live in a simulation. That's okay. That's as real as we could ever want to be. But that's another, that's, that's a conversation for another time. The other question was actually exactly the opposite. Uh, was a highly kind of from the realist side of things. Yes. You gave the options of nothingness and of tohu v'bohu. Yes. Now, the Platonist or the Neoplatonist yes. way is basically the mathematical reality, if you like, is more real than the physics. Good. And in many respects, you can't imagine mathematics or sets or, or even laws of identity, laws of non-contradiction, any of these things, you can't imagine them being created. They don't seem like the things that are, they seem to be eternal things, but they yes. always exist. Yes. How can you create number theory? Yes. It's, it's, well, that's a that's an, a very nice that's an, another very nice question. But the things you're talking about, numbers and properties, they're what philosophers call abstract entities, and uh, that's in contrast to concrete entities. 
Now, one of the things about abstract entities is they can't enter into causal relationships. You can never bump into the number two, right? The number two could never, could never cause you to slow down or something like that. It doesn't enter into physical causal relationships. Abstract, abstract things don't. So the reason two options I gave you for God's creating the world is out of nothing or something, and the something I gave you was like tohu vavohu, is because the world we live in seems like seems to be concrete, right? Um, so the material, the hylic matter from which God created the world um, is generally thought to be concrete. At least that's what the Raubag thinks, thinks. Now, is it possible that God created the world out of platonic forms? Yes, maybe. I don't know that that view is... Um, explored or endorsed or adopted by any of the kind of major Jewish thinkers. But you raise a great point because it looks like properties can't even be created because they're outside of time, just like God is. Where is the number two? And when, when's its birthday? Number two doesn't have a birthday. Number two is outside of time, just like God is. It doesn't have a beginning. It can't be caused. So maybe God didn't make the number two. I don't have a position on this. Um, you might think that there's no question too complicated or obscure for me to be interested in, but this almost is at my limit. It's a very, very hard question. There's a great book by an evangelical philosopher uh, called William Lane Craig on, on God and numbers. And it's worth looking into because he feels very, very threatened by this question, Baruch. He thinks it would be a terrible thing if the numbers were as eternal as God. It would be a terrible thing if Plato's uh, properties were as kind of ontologically independent as God. And he has a whole book on this topic. And he, he's, he's actually, I think he's sometimes uh, underrated by the philosophical community. He's a very, very good philosopher. And he really knows his philosophy of mathematics. So I won't answer that question, but I'll refer you to William Lane Craig on numbers and abstractor. Thank you. No worries. But my, my, my general attitude is numbers are part of the deep structure of God's own cognitive architecture. But I won't go into that. That's my thesis. Well, that, the other side of what well, the, the side of it from the physical side is that the more the more refined the concrete becomes it, it becomes like numbers so once you go into fields and all of that business and that's right that's right it turns that all the physical concrete stuff looks like it's just number relationships that's right somebody somebody said what so the whole universe is like one big schrodinger's cat well yeah yeah nicole yeah kind of and and the mind of god is is what collapses the wave function my god god is the observer um all right okay Rob. i think that's it I, I, I can't take any more of your time uh it's been <laughs> unbelievable can't wait to have you back um Thank you. It, it, yeah it's it's been very very eye-opening mind-opening uh and looking forward to doing a lot of review because i think there's a lot yes, there thank to... you well this has been recorded yeah. and and this is basically a summary of the second chapter of my book and let me say just one more thing is that it's very important to me because I very often teach in universities where perhaps this message um, wouldn't be appropriate for me to say, but this is a chabura and therefore it's appropriate for me to say. Um, 
these aren't, this isn't just mental gymnastics, though it might feel that way. What we're engaging with are fundamental questions about the universe in which we live. We know the answers we come up with are only preliminary, they're our best guesses. But if we're doing it right, hopefully it should shape uh, kind of our religious experience and it should shape our relationship with the Abishter, with God. And, in, and, and more than that, it should shape uh, our behavior and the way that we're inspired to um, observe God's mitzvahs as we live in God's world and uh, as we interact with God's other creatures. So uh, I hope that um, the mental gymnastics translates into real religious significance for people. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I know the Rav, the Rosh Beth Midrash, Rav Dweck, whenever he discusses philosophical stuff with me, he always says, you know, it, it's there to improve practice and to get to know him and his ways. So uh, thank that's, you. What, that's what Rabbi Sachs said as well. He said, he told, he told my friend Maureen Kendler, who's also passed away, he said, the, the stuff Sam's doing is really, that's, that's really interesting and fun. But if it doesn't actually change who you are and how you live, then it didn't go far enough. I think it was Plotinus who said, knowledge without action is dead to us. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you so much, Rav. Really, really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for being here. Looking thank forward you. to seeing you all next week at, uh, for, for Rav Yonatan Halavishur uh, on the origins of the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, Rav Liebens, go to bed. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank Good you. Night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.